My name is Eric Hoffman, executive pastor here at Fellowship Franklin, and every so often I uh, rotate in. Uh, our teaching pastors are uh, Lloyd Shadrach and Rob Sweet, and so every once in a while I get a chance to teach. And this te- text in particular, Acts 15, if you want to turn your, to your Bibles there, you can, you can put your thumb there and we'll get to that in a second, is, uh, is just a key and critical passage as we come about the halfway part, uh, a little more in Acts, as we've been walking through the book of Acts. This is God's plan A. The church is God's plan A for the world. And so we've been talking about that and what that means for us. But uh, before we get there, I wanted to show you a, an image. Uh, this last Thursday, March 8th, 1998, uh, we were in the uh, Franklin High School in Fellowship Bible Church. We had their first public worship service in Franklin High School in the cafeteria. If you take a look at this image, um, I've been, looked at this a couple times, and it's just, it's unbelievable because you think about like how we are experiencing churches. We're sitting in comfortable chairs. They, we don't have a subway sign in the front. Um, but you think about like what was the kind of the core and the nucleus of what they were about was getting uh, the gospel uh, to people for real life change. And they had this, this phrase they were using, change lives, change lives. And so we're building on the, the foundation of what they laid 20 years ago. So this year we're kind of celebrating 20 years and in God's providence, we're kind of revisioning what would God do in us the next 20 years. Was anyone here there? Are, are, we have one person. That's amazing. So I, I didn't know how many, a couple people were there. Um, but think about that. I mean, 20, 20 years. I remember the, our first day kind of moving in here. Some of the people who were there in the core group, uh, we were moving in some of these chairs. And they were like, this is the last time I hope that I have to move in chairs uh, for the first, first worship. Because they were setting up and tearing down and all that kind of stuff. But this year, you know, we're really looking at this of like, God, what would you do in us? How would you lead us and guide us? Um, and, and so we're going to be talking a little bit more about what this 20 years means for us and celebrating together. Last week, if you were here, I want to I recap just a little bit because this message is really 2.0 of what we did last week. Last week, we had everything cleared off the stage and we had a big banquet table. And you can see in this image right here, we actually had these stanchions up and we had the table block, this banquet feast table. And we essentially said, this is not for you. And we go back to Acts 10 and 11, and that's essentially what was happening. You had these, you had the, the Jewish believers saying, the Gentiles, this isn't for you. We're, we're actually blocking fellowship from you. You actually need to pick up and become Jewish first and pick up the dietary laws and those things. And then you can come to the table. And then we, at the end, said, well, Peter, as, as he has this vision that the things that were unclean are now clean. And he says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved. And all come to the table. And we said the gospel is for all. Well, the same type of issue is happening uh, today in our text in Acts 15, where there's this divisive issue that's going to be happening around, do the, do the people that are coming to the faith, the Gentiles, need to become Jewish first? Do they need to be circumcised and, and obey Moses' law? And so there's going to be this great debate around this division and what's at stake here is really what is required for salvation. Now, last week, uh, Lloyd, when he talked about this rope, he talked about, this, the last couple of weeks we've used this analogy, if this rope was religion, 
And we're defining religion in this way. Any system or beliefs that you believe that you have to do in order to earn your way to God to make yourself acceptable to God. So any system or beliefs that you have to try to earn or do in order to make yourself acceptable to God. So if this rope went to the moon, I know I cannot climb this rope all the way to the moon. In my head, I believe that. But in real life, how many times do I try to justify myself by what I do before God? By my actions making me acceptable before God. And so that's what we're talking about, this rope of religion. We're going to use this throughout today. And so this big issue that they're going to come around is whether the Gentiles need to become Jewish in order to become followers of Jesus, in order to be saved. Now this is huge because it's essentially saying, what do I need to do uh, to be saved? This morning, as one of your pastors, I want to fight for you in the way that I want to bring so much clarity to the gospel, but I also want to fight for you in this way. There are so many of you who, uh, over conversations that we have, um, some of you who grew up in the church and some of you who didn't grow up in the church, you get these messages that you've internalized about who God is and messages in some of the, some of the churches that you went to that just leave you in shame. And I just want to talk, uh, just, just bring so much clarity to the gospel so that you can have an understanding of what is the truth of who God is and what is required for me to, in order to be saved and to be a Christian and follow Jesus and what is not. So if we understand the truth with such clarity, hopefully you'll be able to distinguish what are the lies that you believe. And so here's some of the things that as I've talked with people and as I've met with you in my office or met with you over a lunch, I hear people say things like this, and I just want, if you resonate with any of these, I want you just to, just to write a note and to say, I resonate with this. Some of you have internalized, I need to clean myself up before I come to God. You might think if people around me only knew what I've done in my past, they wouldn't accept me. I shouldn't even be here at church. I'm not good enough. You maybe have thoughts of looking at yourself or, or, and comparing yourself to others around you and feel like you're failing in so many different ways. God is always disappointed in me. When is God going to get tired of me failing and kick me out of the family? Life with God feels more like a burden and a weight that I'm trying to live up to than it does freedom and grace. You see, when we... Um, in this passage, what we're going to see is that the, the Jewish believers, those who converted from Judaism, they're Jewish believers, that they were holding the law of Moses. I mean, they've been following this and the traditions their whole lives. And they're coming, and I believe it was out of a good desire that they wanted these, these new converts, these Gentiles, to actually follow the law of Moses. They had respect for the law of Moses. They've been doing these traditions all their life. And I think in the same way, maybe a good desire for some of the churches that you grew up in or some of the lies you believed about God or who he was, I believe maybe they wanted to protect you from going outside of God's uh, boundaries and, and, his, and his commands. And, and so they start to say, oh, well, you can't do this and you can't do this. And they're trying to control. And really what religion is, is trying to change human hearts by adding rules and laws. And it's done out of control and fear and manipulation. And the thing that we're going to see today is that rules and laws never change the human heart. 
The gospel is the only thing, the power of God is the only thing that can change the human heart. So when we try to put on rules in order to control people's behaviors, it just becomes behavior modification, it just becomes moralism, it just becomes what you have to do to earn your way to be acceptable by God. And so this message, I believe, is not just pertinent for them to argue over, it's crucial for us to discuss, and what are the implications of this. So if you will, would you turn to Acts 15, 1 through 5. We're actually going to be going through 35 verses, and so I'm not going to be going verse by verse. In the back half, I'm I'm just going to let you kind of read through some of those with clarity. I'm going to be talking about them, but this is a lot to cover, and I I want to really hone in on a few places that are key. Verse 1, let's look at this together. So men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had a great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, Uh, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. And when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. His pause there. So when we see when Peter has this vision in, in Acts 10 and 11, and it's kind of fleshed out with Cornelius, this, this Gentile, we see that what it was uh, unclean in the dietary laws are now becoming clear. And so when, he, when Peter is talking about this, he is recognizing that Cornelius and them didn't become saved by following the law first. No, it was faith by grace in, the, in Christ, and that's how they were saved. So Peter is coming to this understanding in, in Acts 10. Now this is... Where, we're, where we are today is about estimated about 10 years later after the Cornelius incident with Peter. So this is still an issue. So this is a time of transition for the church. And Paul and Barnabas are sent north from Jerusalem to a city called Antioch. So this is a, a place where there was many Hellenistic Jews. This would be Jews by origin, but uh, Gentile by culture. And then there was many Gentiles coming to faith. And so they had spent about a year here uh, discipling these new believers and sharing the gospel with them and, and helping them grow. And as they observe what's going on, these men from Judea come up and they see what's going on. They say, this is out of control. We're just letting these Gentiles just come in and just be part of the church. Like we're just letting them come in. How, how, we can't let them do this. And they're trying to put back the law of Moses and saying they need to be circumcised. Now there's two arguments that the men of Judea are, are raising here. So look at verse one. They're saying, unless... You are circumcised according to the custom of Moses. You cannot be saved. Verse 5, it is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. So this is the, the two kind of things that they keep coming back to and saying, hey, these Gentile believers want to be made right with God, but we're saying the only way that they can be made right with God is if they become, what, Jews first, then they can be saved. So believing in Jesus is not enough. You need to do this and obey the law of Moses, and then you can be in, and then you can be accepted by God. So this is what the core uh, group of Jewish believers are doing. They are going 
to the rope of religion and saying, yes, Jesus is Messiah. These are people who have believed, but also do this. In order to be accepted, you have to believe in Jesus, that he was the son of God, that he died and and was raised again, and he did that for you, and you need to follow the law of Moses and be circumcised. Do you see what they're doing here? They're saying Jesus plus the law of Moses and circumcision, and you can be saved. And that's why, they are, that's why Paul and Barnabas, uh, they, they get in this heated dissent and this argument around that because of the, the gospel clarity is at stake. So the question that the council, there's going to be a council that's formed, the apostles, the elders, and, and others are going to be forming this council in order to debate, is there any requirement for us to be saved other than faith and grace? That's the issue that is coming before them. The second issue actually stems from this. That's not uh, so clear in the text, but the issue of this, if the Gentiles are allowed just to be Gentiles and, and be saved just by faith and grace, but the Jews are saying you have to obey the law of Moses and be circumcised, and if, they, if, if the council just said we can just do that, then you would essentially have two different churches. You would have a Gentile church and a Jewish, uh, now Messianic Jews now, would, would be these two separate churches because they couldn't have fellowship together. Because the law of Moses would say you couldn't eat with these people. So how could you have fellowship together if you couldn't eat at the same table, if you couldn't be around these people who were unclean? So that's a, there's some big issues in this. Now, um, as I've talked with many of you, and, and, I, and I was this way for a while until I went to seminary, I had to take a couple extra courses on this. I want to bring some clarity around, like, what is the law? Like, what, do we have to obey anything of the law? What is the law? Why did God give the law? I just want to talk to you, so bring some clarity around this. The law was given in the Old Testament to God's people to set up this covenant, this agreement between God and his people. And the law was meant to guide, constrain evil, to show holiness. It exposed their guilt. It was their tutor. It showed them that they were in need. And it also showed that there was a rescuer coming who could fulfill what they could not. So some of the laws are dietary, some of the laws are social, some are justice-oriented. And when they follow these, the, when they follow these, God set it up in such a way that when they followed the law, they would actually be distinct from other nations. Now that distinction, they were to be distinct from the world for the world. Let me say that again. The law was to make them distinct from the world for the world. It was to show that there is one true God and that the way that they were living was, it was showing what he was like and who he was. Now what happens is, when God sets up his, the nation of Israel and he calls them out and, and Moses is, is kind of leading that and he calls them out of slavery, he sets up the Ten Commandments. Do you remember this? And Moses goes up on, uh, up on the mountain and he comes back down with, with the commandments. Now what happens right away? God gives the commandments, but what happens immediately? Israel breaks them. They collect all the gold, they melt them down, they form an idol. So it's essentially, as soon as God gives them, hey, here are the ways to live with me in relationship with me and relationship with others, what do they do? They break them. They rebel against God's authority and God's commands. And then what happens? God gets more specific with his laws. 
And then we see throughout the whole Old Testament, this pattern starts. In Judges, you, you see that they do what is right in their own eyes rather than obeying God's law. And so you have this, you have this issue continuing to happen throughout the Old Testament where God gives them a law, they rebel, God gets more specific with the laws, they rebel, God gets more specific. And now you have 613 laws by the end of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament, the law makes it very clear that they cannot live up to the perfect standard of the law. The law is exposing to them that they cannot do this. The law was never meant for salvation. Let me repeat this again. The law was never meant for salvation. It was meant to show them that they needed salvation. So anytime that we come to the Old Testament, we can actually preach the gospel from the Old Testament. And I'm going to tell you just really quickly how you can do that. The law is saying that they cannot do it. They cannot live up to the standard. But there is one who has come and is, is going to come that can live up to that standard. And through him, we actually have the perfect obedience of that we, uh, that we did, but actually it was him who was put on him. So here's how you can preach the gospel from the Old Testament. In any passage, you can see that there is a, a standard set on them, but they cannot live up to it. And it's pointing to their need that one day there will be one who will come and meet that need. So any place that you're in in the Old Testament, how it is showing how, what is the perfect standard, how they couldn't live up to it, and there is one who is coming that will. So we can always preach the gospel from the Old Testament in that way. But when Jesus comes, he says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to do what? Fulfill the law. So how does Jesus fulfill the law? Well, he gives us an example of this in the, in the greatest commandment. When someone asks, what is the greatest commandment that we are to follow? He says, it is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then to love your neighbor as yourself. And in doing so, the one who loves fulfills the law. Romans 13, 8 says the one who loves fulfills the law. But the law that Jesus talks about, he says, it's not just that you're not to murder. It's that you've heard it said about that. But I'm telling you that if you get angry in your heart against a brother and that you are essentially wishing murder on them, it's not just that you don't uh, commit adultery. It's that you don't lust after someone who is not your wife or your spouse in that way. So what is Jesus doing? He's making the law even harder. But Jesus is exposing the heart of what the law was supposed to do. The law was to expose our need for a Savior and that we could not fulfill it in our own strength, but needed a rescuer. And so the law was always pointing to that, not for the law to be the end of the salvation, but to be uh, exposing our need for salvation and so there's many uh, more passages that you could talk about if you're taking notes. Uh, Romans chapter 2, uh, Colossians 2, Galatians 3 and 4 talk about the law and now of grace and how it's fulfilled. Uh, in our library, we actually have Galatians for you and Romans for you books that kind of walk you through those books, which I'd highly recommend to you. So that's the law that's kind of setting up what they're, what they're kind of taking us back to. But let's go to the debate. Let's pick up what happens in Jerusalem in Acts 6, what begins to happen there. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter then stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days of 
God made a choice among you that my, by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon them the neck, uh, placing on their neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in the same way as they are also. And then what happens after Peter brings gospel clarity? All the people kept silent and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So as we go into this text, we find the church and this council made up the apostles and elders in the church in Jerusalem. And we read in verse 7 that there was much debate over this matter. So it's not surprising the people in Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem, would be um, having a hard time of transitioning away from the traditions and the law of Moses because many of them were priests. Many of them were Pharisees that were now believers. And changing that whole lifestyle or that view was going to take time. So the church is in transition. That's the debate that was happening. But what, the, what they were trying to do, the, the, the men from Judea and the, also the, those in Jerusalem, when they were arguing this, they were trying to rebuild the wall that separated the Gentiles and the Jews. They were trying to build back and stitch together the curtain that was now accessible to all to God. They were trying to stitch that back up. They were trying to put on the heavy Jewish yoke onto the Gentile believers. Now, note, Peter made it very clear that, gen, that the Gentiles, especially in Cornelius and his household, they were saved by hearing and believing, not by obeying the law of Moses. They didn't obey the law of Moses, and then they were saved. No, they heard the gospel and then believed the gospel by faith through grace, and that is how they were saved. So Peter, I can only imagine, if you, if you put yourself in this room, that Peter is essentially saying to those who he's journeyed with, those other disciples, he's saying, guys, no matter how hard that I tried to keep the law, no matter how hard you tried to keep the law, I mean, Bartholomew, uh, Thaddeus, I mean, did you find righteousness through the law? Did the law make you feel free? So why, if we couldn't keep these, why would we be putting these on our new Gentile brothers and sisters? What Peter is saying is sinners can have their hearts purified only by faith in Christ. Salvation is not by keeping the law. And this is the interesting thing. At the end of what Peter says, we would expect him to say, they, the Gentiles, shall be saved even as we Jews. That's how you would expect Peter to say, but he actually reverses this. And he says, we Jews shall be saved even as they. Isn't that interesting what he does? He says that we Jews shall be saved even as they. The Gentiles are accepted by God as we are. And he uses this word cleanse because he cleansed their heart by faith. Now that word cleanse is used very intentionally, I believe, by Peter these unclean Gentiles are now what? Clean. 
The ones that we would call unclean before are now deemed as clean. On what basis? Did they start obeying the law of Moses? Did they start doing all these things? Did they start following all of these commands? No, God cleansed their heart by faith. Look at verse 11. He's so clear in verse 11. But we believe that we are saved through faith. We are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in the same way they also are. Peter's words are clear here. It's by grace, through faith, in Jesus, period. It's not Jesus plus the law. It's Jesus by faith, by grace. After Peter speaks, it goes silent. He's brought this clarity And then Paul and Barnabas begin to tell all their stories. And then there is another authoritative voice that's going to come into play, and that's James, who is the brother of Jesus. And so we see James stand up. Let's look at verse 14 through 18, what James is going to say here. Simeon, who is Peter, has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. Now, this is a a quote from Amos chapter 9. After these things, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. So not only is there evidence given that it's plain to see that Paul and Barnabas are saying, that that Peter is saying, but it's also then James gets up and he says it's not just the evidence, it's not just what the Holy Spirit is doing, it's also been written that these Gentiles who are going to be called out are going to be my people. This is also written in the Word of God. So this is a, a way to test if something is actually God's will, if something is, do we see evidence of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, do we see it uh, affirmed by the community of believers, and does the word of God stand by it? And so James is bringing that authority, and he's bringing not just the evidence, but he's bringing the testimony of the word. Let's go to verse 19 and 20. Therefore, he continues on, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. So James says we shouldn't add on the law, circumcision and the law, to these Gentiles who are coming. But then he goes into, but they should abstain from things. So it almost feels like, is he putting a new law on? Like, what is, what is James actually doing? They're sort of abstain from things polluted, food polluted by idols, sexual morality, strangled animals, all that, that sort of nature. Now this seems very weird that James is doing this, but I want to just uh, unpack this. What James is actually doing is bringing the implications of those who believe and trust the gospel. How then are we to live? How then are these Gentiles to live? We know it's not to follow the law of Moses. We know that that's not what he's talking about here. So what is he asking um, these Gentiles when Paul and Barnabas are going to go back? What is he asking them to do? He's not burdening them with the law. He's drawing out these implications of what this looks like. He is essentially saying, if you believe Jesus, that he is your savior, that he is the perfect sacrifice, and that he makes you right with God, then why would you go back into these temples to these pagan gods and continue in the way of of what you once lived? 
That's essentially what he's saying. Where there was sexual immorality, worshiping of the pagan temples. Uh, in the pagan temples, there's prostitution as a, as a way of worship. In, the, in these pagan temples, they would strangle these animals to keep the blood in the meat. And so he's saying, like, you know, everything is clean. This food is all clean. But I'm, I'm imploring you, don't go back into the ways of what you once lived. Now, the New Testament writings are going to talk about this in Ephesians and Galatians. They're going to kind of unpack this more. But then he says, and this is, I think, the, 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 you can do a whole message on this next thing that he says, verse 21. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogue. In other words, wherever the gospel is going to be preached, there are going to be Jews still in those places. And they're going to be in the synagogues, and they're going to be hearing the words of Moses. And so he is saying you are going to make it a stumbling block for Jews to actually come to faith if you're living like this and eating food that's been polluted by going to idols. So he is asking, James is going to implore them, he's going to say, can you not give up your freedom that you have in Christ for those who have yet to believe? Now, this is a whole message in itself of all the implications of that. Can you not, brother, give up your freedom to drink alcohol? in certain situations so that you don't create a stumbling block for others. That's kind of the implications. He's starting to draw these implications. Like, can you not give up? You are, have total freedom to do this. You have total freedom to eat that food. It is not going to contaminate your soul. But you might be causing one of our Jewish brothers to not come to faith if you do eat that food. So I would implore you, out of love for that that person, so that they could come to faith, would you abstain from that? Do you see the gospel implications that he's bringing out? He's not burdening them with a law. He's actually calling them to love, which is fulfilling the law. He's calling them to consider those um, who have not yet believed. And so this is just a, a phrase that's been really popular in the, in the church for, for hundreds of years. In essentials to the Christian faith, we have unity. In non-essentials, we have liberty, but in all things, love is the thing that guides us. Let me say that again. In essentials, we have unity. In non-essentials, we have liberty, but in all things, love is the guide for us. So the council then makes this definitive decision that incides with Paul and Barnabas and Peter and says, God has accepted the Gentiles as Gentiles. They do not need to become Jewish to become acceptable by God. They are saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. And we see the rest of the passage, they decide to write this letter. This is kind of the, the, next, the next verses. To write this letter, send it back with Paul and Barnabas, and to bring that back to the church in Antioch, and to take a couple witnesses with them so that everyone knows this isn't just Paul and Barnabas is saying this is what happened, but to bring credit, credibility to it. And they bring that back to the church of Antioch, and the church of Antioch hears the gospel afresh all over again and celebrates and has joy. Now, here's the thing. The gospel is not just for unbelievers. We see that the church in Antioch, the gospel message is actually for believers. It's for us each Sunday to remind each other, what is the good news of Jesus? 
Because isn't it so true that the best news, the good news of Jesus, the things that we would say, those who weren't made right with God now can be made right with God through faith by grace. That is the best news that we are adopted sons and daughters through faith. We can actually talk to the God of the universe. We are his, we are accepted, we are loved for who he has made us to be in him and we are his. And so when we see that good news, we need to be reminded of that. There should be great joy as we remind each other of this. But isn't it so easy for us to fall back into adding to what Jesus has done and making these rules and these commands? And it's so easy for us to go back. And so I want to unpack what are the implications for us this morning? How do we uh, live in light of this text and so let me ask this just a couple of things in the so what. I'm going to call the band um, back up and we're, as we start to conclude this morning. Many of us um, believe and, and have no problem believing that we come to faith in Jesus by grace alone. But then there's a subtle thing that starts to happen as we, as we kind of have by grace alone, we start to then start to think, well, then how do I grow? Well, it becomes all the things that I do. And so we start to base how close uh, we are, our acceptableness to God, is that a word? Um, based on what we do or don't do. And we so easily, we come and we, we hold the cross with one hand, but then we also have this wrist, list of rules that is really like a law and a burden that is, is over us. And that's the same thing that they were doing. You had Jewish believers who were holding the cross, but then they were also saying, but you also need to do all of these things in order to be saved. And I believe this is how denominations start to wear and start to create burdens on people. In the non-essentials, they start saying these are the essentials. This is the church. This is the only church that does it right. And you should avoid these people and shouldn't talk to these people. And it becomes this little huddle around all of the list of things that you need to do to try to climb and earn your way to God and, and to show that you're his and all sorts of things. So we come to faith by grace, but then we believe it's all our self-effort and how we grow. But the gospel is not a religion, and it's also not relativism. It's also not, you're okay, I'm okay, we're all okay, live how you want. It's also not that. The gospel is an equal offender. It says, you were so bad that, you, that the Son of God had to come and pay the price that you couldn't pay. And it also says that you will never be good enough on your own to make it to Jesus. You needed a rescuer. You needed someone to come in. It offends those who say I'm moral and I'm good, and it offends those who say I'll never be good enough. And here's where I just want to, um, the implications of the gospel for us is that it changes our motivation, not that we have to obey things, because we do. We have commands of Jesus that we need to live into, to go and make disciples, to love our neighbors as ourselves, all sorts of different commands that Jesus would put on us. But the motivations for why we would live those out is because we are accepted, not because we're trying to earn acceptance. It's how you could have two people in this room today, but they're here for two entirely different motivations. 
One is to say, I am here because it's, I'm obligated, because I want to make God happy with me. This is what I'm supposed to do as a good Christian. And the other might be here because I love Jesus and all that he has done for me. I am free in Christ, and I want to be part of the community of faith to be strengthened and to strengthen others. See, the motivation is different. But what I want to do this morning is I want to bring in stark contrast the difference between religion and the gospel. So I'm going to bring it up on the screen. And I want you to follow along as I read these over us. Because I think these have so many uh, 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 just important implications of believing the gospel. Religion is good advice. It's advice. It says, here's a list of things that you need to now go and do. But the gospel says it's good news. It's what Jesus has done for you already. It's been done. Religion says, compare yourselves to others, and then you'll find yourself acceptable. But the gospel says our security is not found in our performance, but in the perfection of Jesus on our behalf. Religion comes back here and it says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. But the gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Religion says, pull yourself up. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Try harder. Make yourself better. Do more. Carry this load. But the gospel says, Jesus has already fulfilled the burden of the law. Now rest in Christ and what he has done. Religion says God would be happier with you if you were a better person. But the gospel says there is no future version of yourself that God will be more pleased with you because it's all based on what he has done. Religion comes back and says you need to clean yourself up first. You need to be more like this first and then you can come to God. But that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. It says the gospel is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Would you stand with me? Because I want to read just some clarity of the gospel for us as we sing. Galatians 2 says it's not the law that brings righteousness to us. If the law could bring righteousness, then Jesus died unnecessary. So it's not the law of God, it's the grace of God. It's grace that erases our pride. It's grace that enables us to take off the mask and be vulnerable and show up. It's grace that changes our hearts. It's grace that makes us holy. It's grace that teaches us to love. It's grace that makes us more like Jesus. And it's grace that frees us from carrying the heavy spiritual burden of the law and these rules for our justification. I want to be so clear. Jesus didn't come to start another religion. Jesus came so that we would have freedom in him and have relationship with the God of the universe. This rope, he came to do what? You want me to tear it down? Do you, do you guys want to stay under the burden of religion? No. We're free. We're free. Let's sing. Let's sing.